been for decades. Am I the only one in the room or do we have other? Now show me your J night. Oh yes, I see women and men raising their hands. That is awesome. Well, the scarf that I'm wearing today is a gift from my husband, Eric, who knows this about me. I know you can't read the text from there, but the text on my scarf is the entirety of chapter 60 of the book, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. It's the second to last chapter when the two main characters, come on guys, who are the two main characters in Pride and Prejudice? Lizzie and Darcy, very good. Um, they're revisiting their the evolution of their relationship, which has now moved from pride and prejudice to mutual love and affection. I first discovered Austin's six novels when I was in high school, dating that guy. I was infatuated with the idea of being in love, and I was completely taken in by the sentimentality of Austin's love stories and the many against all odds happy endings that her books often contain, including this chapter. As I've matured or gotten older (laughs) over the decades of my adulthood, I've realized more and more how this brilliant author was writing love stories with one hand while exposing harmful class and gender norms with the other. And there have been many cinematic adaptations of her stories made over the years. Back in 2005, a movie director named Joe Wright tried his hand at a big screen production of Pride and Prejudice. His is the one with, who knows these? Oh, good guess. That's Sense and Sensibility. Kara Knightley, that's right, and Matthew McFadden, which there's this whole debate about who's the best Darcy, but he's in that one. Um, Raise your hand if you've seen it. Raise your hand if you have a favorable opinion. Raise your hand if you think this is not the best adaptation of Austen. Oh, oh, okay. Well, people do have very strong opinions about their Austen adaptations. I'm pretty open to any creative interpretation as long as there's no zombies in it. And that has actually been done. So Joe Wright's 2005 version has one of my favorite scenes of all the Austin film adaptations that I've ever seen. The scene I'm thinking of is a ballroom scene early in the plot. The two main characters, Lizzie and Darcy, have very strong feelings toward one another. The only problem is they don't know what those feelings are yet. So the scene begins. They line up across from each other with dozens of other couples waiting for the music. The tension between them is palpable. Mercifully, a single violin breaks the silence as it begins singing its haunting, Baroque-inspired melody. Our main characters bow and begin to glide in step with the rest of the crowd while somehow also making awkward small talk. The high-pitched violin is now joined by a mid-tone viola as the scene continues to build and shifts. The main characters stop arguing. They stop talking altogether. In stony silence, they shift all of those fiery emotions that had been coming out in words back into the movements of the dance. But now, they're the only ones in the ballroom. The space that was brimming with people is now cavernous and empty. The 
violin and viola's mournful high and mid-tones are dramatically filled in with a deep and resonant cello. The music swells. Our two dancers remain completely mesmerized by one another as they swirl and glide and dip together all alone in this expansive room, suspended in a liminal space between attraction and repulsion. They each see only each other, And as the viewers of this movie, we only see these two. We are suspended together with them, crescendoing and crescendoing until the very last beat of the dance, when the instruments intersect in one resonant culminating final chord, the spell breaks, the characters break gaze, and the room is suddenly full of people again and all their accompanying white noise. And the moment has ended. I remember the first time I saw this movie, I did not get this scene at all. I was totally confused. Where did all the rest of the people go in the middle of the dance? What's happening? It took me many more viewings to fully appreciate how artistically the director had rendered this pivotal moment of total attunement, each protagonist to each other, and me, the viewer, to only these two characters. So... Thanks for indulging me as I recount one of my favorite fictional stories. I promise I will bring this around to our sermon today. I get the incredible privilege to lead us together in thinking about one of my favorite true stories. One I've heard many times, but only in repeated encounters with it have I begun to fully appreciate how artistically our synoptic gospel writers have rendered a pivotal moment of total attunement between Jesus and the woman with the issue of blood. It is a love story, but it's a gospel, agape kind of love story, rather than an Austin sentimentality. Our biblical protagonists embody very different personalities, emotions, and dynamics than Austin's characters. But like hers, they experience total attunement to each other in the midst of a pressing crowd. It's a powerful story. Powerful. Power. Now, that's an interesting word. It is also a word that occupies the center of our story. Jesus perceives that power has gone out of him. It's a word that can set us a little on edge sometimes in our culture's political climate because of how it's defined and then how it's wielded for and against ideologies. But we don't need to be afraid of the word power. We are Jesus people living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Power can be divine. Power can be human. When we're talking about divine power, the Greek root dunamis, we're referring to God's miraculous ability, to the power to create, to speak things out of nothing, the power to heal, eyes, Limbs, reproductive systems, identities, our very souls. When we're talking about human power, we're looking at the derivatives of those aspects of the omnipotent God and God's image bearers. We can't create out of nothing. We can't speak things into existence. But to varying degrees, we can create meaning in our communities for good or for evil. Humans can't miraculously heal in our own power, but we can impact change in our communities, again, for good or 
or evil. Andy Crouch argues that both divine power and human power are meant to be gifts. And we need to engage a far more deeply honest, deeply Christian conversation about human power in particular, to talk about power in a new way, a way that goes to the heart of the good news and to the one who alone is good. So let's hold those two aspects of human power together as we journey through this story, the ability to impact change and the ability to create meaning. Back to my girl Jane Austen for just a second. She points out subtly through her writing, there are certain people in early 19th century Georgian society who had the power to impact change and to create meaning, and some who didn't. Austen writes her stories in such a way to expose that those lines often fall along gender and class. In this story of Jesus and the woman with the issue of blood, those same lines are exposed. Let's begin by focusing our lens on this nameless woman. Scholars aren't sure exactly what an issue of blood is, but are fairly certain it was an internal hemorrhage of either her digestive or reproductive system. Regardless, under Levitical law, it would have been treated as if it were a reproductive issue. Under the law, that would render her ritually impure. To be ritually impure in this culture for 12 years, for all practical purposes, was no different than to be morally impure. Between what we know from the gospel narratives and what we know about ancient Near East culture, we can surmise the following about this woman with relative certainty. First of all, she was broke. That was in the text. She spent all she had on doctors and she only got worse. She would also have no avenue for earning an income. She was alone. Her family most likely would have ostracized her and their community would have most likely affirmed them for it as a righteous choice since she was essentially morally impure for 12 long unreasons. Then we know she was most likely homeless. We do know for sure she was in pain because she noticed immediately when her pain ceased. And she probably looked very sick. 12 years of blood loss would lead to anemia. 12 years of poverty doesn't improve. Finally, she probably smelled really, really bad in the middle of that crowd. One thing that we can be absolutely sure of in this scene, not a single person in that crowd would have been thinking, this woman is the center of what an all-loving and all-powerful God of the universe is doing in the world right now. Not her. Let's temporarily suspend her from our scene right there and shift the lens now to that all-loving and all-powerful God of the universe incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, the other real-life character in our story today. Because Jesus is fully divine and fully human, he wields both kinds of and speak things into existence. And he has human power, the ability to impact change and create meaning. If you're like me, 
thinking about his divine power is a lot more simpler to contemplate. He was God. He had God's power. But what does it mean for the God-man to have human power with human power's limitations? We tend to think of Jesus as the underdog, lacking in power. In other words, being oppressed. Let's put that theory to the test. In many ways, Jesus was oppressed. In many ways, he was limited in his ability to impact change and create meaning. His parents brought two doves at his circumcision because they couldn't afford the customary two sheep. He was from a low occupation. The question, can anything good come from Nazareth, indicates that his hometown was not a high-status place. And he was at constant odds with the people who had the most human power in this culture, the religious elites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who had the ability to condemn him to death, leading ultimately to his death on the cross. So, yes, there were many ways that Jesus was oppressed and lacking in power. And yet, alternately, in some ways, Jesus did wield more human power than some of those around him, more ability to impact change and create meaning than the humans he encountered. He was not Samaritan. He was not a woman. He was free in a slave society. His family was counted in the census. Not everybody was. And he was considered a rabbi. He had a voice and he had a following. So in those areas where Jesus did have some measure of human power, that ability to create meaning and impact change, how can we see him emptying himself of it to make space for others who don't? In other words, where do we see him centering the marginalized, moving them right into the center of the heart of the very same love that the Trinity shares? Well, let's answer that question with another question. Why, after observing out loud that he felt divine power go out of him, did Jesus ask, who touched me? Everyone thought that question was ridiculous. In Luke, it's Peter's gaffe to push back on Jesus for even asking it. Duh. Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Why would you ask who touched you? In Mark's telling of the story, this gaffe is attributed to all the disciples. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? The point is, no one at this moment understands who Jesus really is, what he is really about, what he's really doing, not even his own closest companions. Up until now in this story, everyone's gaze has been on two men with human status and power, Jesus and Jairus. With this simple question, who touched me? Jesus skillfully shifts the scene. The crowd disappears from our gaze. Now our scene is only occupied by two characters, Jesus and the woman. The woman, unsure of how she feels about being the focus, nonetheless comes into focus. Both the woman and Jesus are in total attunement, each to the other.
Jesus' divine power has gone out of him to heal her. Yet in a more subtle but also important way, his human power has gone out of him too, to empower her. Remember at the beginning of this story, did anybody notice where does the woman approach him from the front? When Jesus turns his attention to the woman, she now gets to approach from the front too. This is unfamiliar and terrifying to her. She's trembling, yet she gets to tell her story. According to Mark, she tells the whole truth, her whole truth. This is probably the first time in, that she has been listened to with any kind of empathy or compassion in over a decade. And it's the Lord of Lords who has halted nothing less than an emergency convoy of thousands to center her and her story without rushing her, her whole truth. And with 12, excuse me, with 12 years of being sick in that society, her story would not be short. As I envision this moment, this woman who has fallen trembling in front of Jesus, I imagine her head stays low, her eyes stay downcast. She is not used to this level of attention. Despite her halting words, her trembling words, Jesus is listening. Jairus is listening. The whole crowd is listening. By telling her story in this place and time, she is suddenly empowered to make meaning and create change. For herself, yes, but also for her hearers, which means she is not the only one who benefits. And hearing her whole story, how impactful that would be. And then, as only he can, Jesus does something amazing with just one word. He calls her daughter. I envision this moment of intimacy between the two of them. He lifts her up and guides her to her feet until they are face to face, inches apart. His gentle, loving hands raise her chin so her downcast eyes finally meet his for the first time. There she encounters the God of love, the Lord of the universe, her creator, communicating with one word that it is good that she exists, that who she is is good, that she is welcome, that she matters, she belongs to him, daughter, not neighbor, not friend, Either of those two words would have been incredible upgrades in status for her. But no, she gets so much more. Daughter. You know, Christianity is experiential. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, they matter, absolutely. But those religious elites in the crowd believed they had orthodoxy and orthopraxy in abundance. They knew their scriptures backwards and forwards. They dedicated their lives to honoring it, but what they actually had was the letter of the law without any experiential knowledge of the person of God himself. No relationship. With one word, daughter, 
Our protagonist leapfrogs past all of their religious self-importance to understand all the way down to a cellular level what this Christian life is really all about. She knows the gentleness, the kindness, the welcome, the transforming power of being loved by Jesus. With one empathetic interaction with the gentle Jesus, she receives reconciliation at every level of her being. Daughter, I see your faith. It has made you well. Go in peace. What about Jairus? He's been outside our frame of vision for a while now. Jairus simply stood by while this woman was healed. At any moment, Jairus could have inserted himself into our frame, jarring us away from this beautiful moment between our two characters, Jesus and the newly restored daughter. He could have interrupted Jesus to hurry him up, and not a single one of us would have blamed him for that. His own daughter had very real needs, terrifyingly urgent needs. Indeed, servants come and tell him his daughter has died in this interim. By exercising a holy self-restraint to remain outside the frame for this chapter of our story, Jairus, who has asked for what kind of a miracle? Healing miracle, is instead going to get an even bigger miracle, a resurrection. He doesn't know it yet, but it's coming. That's one of the things I love about this story. Jesus' heart for the marginalized is loud and clear, Yet that doesn't mean he's opposed to those with human power. No, Jesus loves everyone regardless of gender, class, ethnicity, status. He's not opposed to people with power. Jesus responds to Jairus, a powerful man, with empathy and compassion. And an important part of that compassion was allowing Jairus to encounter the proper use of human power. Jesus' actions said, there's an imbalance in this community. For 12 years, this woman has been neglected. Nobody has cared about her needs. She's never been the center of anything. Jairus, I'm going to put you on hold for just a bit so she gets to tell her whole truth. Have faith, just believe there's abundance. There's enough for you too. And Jairus did seem to have that faith. And because of that, rather than a healing, he gets a resurrection. From what's not said in the synoptic tellings of the story, we can surmise he was able to trust. He wasn't angry or resentful that Jesus took time to care about this woman. This shines a light on the remarkable interdependence of humanity, how we're called to be in relation to one another. One person's liberation is bound up in another's. Jairus got to hear this woman's whole truth. In so hearing, he was able to have the faith he needed in order to trust when Jesus said, there's abundance for you too. When we're tempted to focus on getting only what we need in isolation from others, we miss out on the greater truth that Jesus can change the whole intertwined reality. In this ancient Near East society, just like Jane Austen's 19th century Georgian society, and status 
are typically seen as more valid, more important, more urgent than the needs of the marginalized. Yet this story interrupts that paradigm. It collides with it. For the first time in her life, this woman was the center of what was happening in her community. Jesus was intentional about using both his divine power and his human power to make that happen for her. As Christians, we are literally little Christs. How can we be little Christs like Jesus in this story? If I want to participate in the redemptive work of Christ in fully embodied ways, like in this story, I must notice, where are the places I have human power relative to others? Where do I have the ability to create meaning and implement change that others may not? How can I empty myself of what I have for the flourishing of those who have not? How can I? In the gospel, we are ministers of reconciliation. We can't do the work of reconciliation without one foot in the cross and one foot in the resurrection. It's dying to self while living in the path of cross-bearing and experienced the little R resurrections of this life has ever wanted to go back. Loving our neighbor leads to entering their stories, giving them our full attention, putting our time and resources on the line in cruciformity for their flourishing. Since we first met Jesus, have our lives changed in terms of our social interactions, our love for those who are different from us, who have less than us? Henri Nouwen says, all Christian action, whether it's visiting the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, or working for a more just and peaceful society is a manifestation of the human solidarity revealed to us in the house of God. It is not anxious human effort to create a better world. It is a confident expression of the truth that in Christ, death, evil, and destruction have been overcome. It's not a fearful attempt to restore a broken order. It is a joyful assertion that in Christ, all order has already been restored. It is not a nervous effort to bring divided people together, but a celebration of an already established unity. So let's take a moment now to invite the Spirit of Christ to weave this story even deeper into our own stories. Each of us is as welcome, beloved, and affirmed in Jesus as this woman with the issue of blood. Maybe we are longing to hear from him again those words of belonging that only he can speak over us to enter into the experiential joy of encountering Jesus afresh. Or maybe we're like Jairus, preoccupied with burdens, very real burdens, and Jesus is asking us to wait while those around us receive what they need first. And in our waiting to exercise holy self-restraint while we listen to the stories of those with less. Or maybe we're feeling tugged to be more like Jesus, to notice, to center, to love the marginalized, to repent of the places we have fallen short of Christ-likeness, 
to be liberated from pride or prejudice to mutual love and affection with those we've misunderstood or ignored. Wherever the Holy Spirit may be shining a light, take a moment of silence now to tell him your whole truth. Bow your head, breathe deeply, tell it to Jesus. He is giving you his full attention.